This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. This week's Talking Business is brought to you by multi-award-winning law firm McDonald Legal, experts in the areas of dispute resolution and commercial and property law. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I'm Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number four in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, February the 24th. First, I'll be talking to Michael Chetner, head of Zoom Australia New Zealand, about the new Zoom virtual agent, an intelligent conversational AI and chatbot solution to help businesses connect and communicate with their customers at scale in a more efficient way. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest unemployment figures. But now let's talk to Michael Chetner. Well, Michael, tell us about uh, Zoom virtual agent. How's it work? Well, Zoom virtual agent is... Part of our, you know, part of our suite of customer experience or CX uh, announcements, and it's a conversational AI bot. So if you think about some of those customer service situations where you are looking at uh, assistance or help, it draws on a body of very specialized information to be able to try and not only distinguish some of those common areas of, you know, customer support that's required related to your product, but also knowing when to divert you to, you know, human intervention or to escalate the call to someone that is, you know, a little bit more appropriate to provide a, a more detailed response. But it is really around the suite of or our platform approach. You know, Zoom certainly has been very well known for its video uh, application. But the beauty of our platform is that we build services on top of this. Uh, and we're moving from this employee experience situation that we've been using, how users work remotely and in a hybrid world, to extending that into a sort of B2C type of scenario around that customer experience. And of course, that, that provides people with lots of flexibility, doesn't it? Yeah, the flexi- I mean, flexibility is critical. I, you know, I, we did some research uh, with YouGov locally, actually. That research showed a number of things. A, a really important one was, you know, 79% of people feel there's a, a sense of loyalty to an organization can deliver services or g- give this right 
customer and product support that they require. I mean, ultimately what that means is then also you provide flexible ways of connecting with, you know, with, with your customers as well. Does that, is that a, is that, is that a physical interaction? Is it a virtual one? Uh, is it one that's driven by, you know, our Zoom virtual agent as well? So that flexibility around, and people, people also want to, you know, communicate in different ways. Some people are comfortable with text, some of them comfortable, some people want to get on the, you know, plain old telephone. Uh, and others, uh, you know, want to do it over the web. So it's really that flexibility. Um, you know, we talk about flexibility a lot. I mean, it's an interesting one around the employee side of things too, because we talk about uh, this concept of hybrid work and providing the tools to be able to be having that flexible life for that hybrid working home life as well. So whether you're using our products at home or at work or in the cafe or wherever you are, you've got that sense of uh, flexibility around it. But in terms of customer experience, it can, it can be virtual. Or it could be face-to-face. Correct, correct. And if you think about, you know, I mean, think about the workflow here, you know, you've got your your chat, your Zoom virtual agent, you initiate that conversation. You know, some of the requests you might have might then get promoted to an actual customer service agent. And not only can you speak to them on voice, that gets promoted to a, a video call, you know, a Zoom video call where you can actually have a very deep uh, interactive discussion. So basically covers all of those elements of escalation but in a way, perhaps, which is a little bit better than just being on the end of a phone line, as you would sort of, you know, is a common experience at the moment. Well, it would allow you to actually develop a real customer engagement strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and as I said before, that, that sense of, you know, if, if, if a brand is providing me that level of service, not only that feels tailored and bespoke, but also uh, solves and, and allows uh, or solves a problem you know, very quickly. That then breeds that loyalty to that organization. So if you think about a B2C strategy organizations might have, that ability to differentiate your service offering compared to your competitors is, is what's going to win you customers and retain them as well. Which is much more effective than, say, doing something, everything by email or on the phone. Yeah, and these are all just channels of communication. And as said, some people may be comfortable with that. But certainly you don't want to be stuck with one dimension of uh, communication with your customers. And this just gives flexibility uh, all the way to whether it be uh, the channel of email, whether it be channel of uh, phone, texting, or is it a, a live personal interaction as well? How have customers taken to this? Well, look, you know, we've just launched last week. You may have seen that um, announcement. Uh, it goes hand in hand with our Zoom contact center product as well. So if you think about uh, from a from a call center or contact center uh, perspective, the ability not only to have flexibility there for your customer agents to be working from anywhere, and we've saw a lot of that during the pandemic, the ability then to, to use the platform uh, or the Zoom platform in multiple ways and having that flexibility. But then uh, coupled with the fact that we've got our Zoom virtual agent product with that contact center product as well, that allows that customer experience, not only to be uh, flexible as we've talked about, but also to also be a little bit more customized and, 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 and tailored to the individual. Uh, and they have, they have different levels to that, of course. What's interesting here is it's a completely new way of working many people and um, my thinking is about what about if I run a business with some employees that really need to be upskilled in this area how do I go about that well look you know we saw the pandemic uh, we the genie came out of the bottle there in terms of how people well let's call it pandemic working at that point there, there was there was just uh, no other option other than to work remotely and, and and work from home what that experience showed us is that um, not only do you need to provide the tools to be able to work from anywhere. It also gave us that opportunity 
then not only it to also reach new talent to be able to be hiring uh, in a non-traditional way, which means not necessarily within a 40 kilometer radius of where your office is. And so then it start, started uh, allowing you know, organizations to tap into talent pools as well, and also have, in some cases, a remote only workforce as well. From that perspective, that then allows you know, that flexibility into you know, the environment, only from an employee experience perspective, also that customer experience as well, as you said. But how effective is retraining or upskilling employees? How, how much did they take to that? Uh, in terms of using the technology? That's right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, well look, I, I said in terms of, well, let's look at it two ways. There's a, there's a formalised uh, in-person requirement for training that we would have had you know, back in the old days. Now, the opportunity to run ad hoc um, communications. And that, as I said, when we talk about channels of communication, that also extends to the employee experience. And when you talk about training, you know, not only can I uh, communicate ad hoc with questions on the fly or queries on the fly through a Zoom chat experience, but also we can use that same uh, that same interaction to then promote into video and voice engagements as well. So I'm not sure if answering that your your question specifically, but the different modes of learning for individuals, the accessibility of those individuals wherever they are, and the ability to present content and share content within a pre-meeting, during meeting, and post-meeting situation just provides that flexibility to to enhance you know the the methods of of relaying that 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 training and training materials and zoom is pretty basic zoom is not that difficult to follow as, as a piece of technology well and that's and that's the you know people say you know from a when we ask our customers you know why zoom and anything else it's because it just works yeah um you know and and ultimately um it's it's a fairly basic requirement to deliver a product that works but it's not very often delivered in the way that zoom had yeah. Yeah, video conferencing has been around in its traditional sense for 20 years, but look, the combination of high quality uh, video and voice communications, the fact that we can leverage that from a cloud yeah. environment, and the fact that, you know, from a proprietary perspective around delivering that service is, yeah. is really critical. Yeah, and I, I'm just, my thinking is, how will this revolutionise contact centres? Well, what it does is that transition into customer, so when we look, when we when we talk about the employee experience, the B two B aspect, right? So when I'm talking to a supplier or a customer or someone within my organisation externally, that allows me, you know, to have rich rich conversations. But when we start extending into that CX or customer experience perspective, we then start uh, interacting with those. You know, you as a business then start adop- adopting Zoom service to be able to differentiate to other competitors within your industry. So how do you get to your customers faster, quicker, and resolving their issues um, faster as well? Now, the fact that we can, from an employee perspective, you are having the same experience as an employee or a consumer across that EX and CX space is quite impactful as well. In another way, the unified communications as a service, the stack of services that we offer within our suite um, extends all the way from from using video all the way to the customer um, uh, contact center agents as well. Well, it would certainly make the contact center experience of customers more personal, wouldn't it? Yeah, and and, and the, there's you know there's a few uh, trends on that that we've seen over the last you know many years, not a couple of years. You know, the fact of mobility and and having devices that can um, that you that you use to interact with are now far, um, are far more mobile, and the power of cloud. So the ability to to access in the same way you'd access you know or any utility. The cloud utility on a device which is now mobile 
then opens itself up into different ways of interaction. Now, whether that's a video call, whether that's a, on an app or the Zoom virtual agent, that just provides that opportunity to communicate with your customers in different ways. And people are much more open now to uh, AI technologies. And that's, yeah, and we're seeing some of those AI features come through. Now, some of the things that, you know, Zoom is looking from an AI perspective, are th those types of things that make a call richer, more effective, uh, with less disruption. You know, we have noise suppression. Uh, the jackhammers next door at the building site are automatically pulled out in terms of the algorithm that we, we bring through there. When we uh, talk to uh, customers now around when they bring their organizations back into meeting rooms, how do, you, how do we frame individual faces to make them look like the conversation we're having now on Zoom at, at, at our top level and framing faces and being able to uh, reflect uh, a more familiar environment for them as well. So those AI features are critical in terms of you know, having productive meetings and communicating better. Well, Michael, that's all quite fascinating. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Now let's talk to indeed economist Callum Pickering. Okay, well, Cal unemployment's increased to 3.7%. Obviously, uh, rate rises and inflation are having an impact. It, it certainly seems that way. The lab market is obviously very tight by historical standards, but it has eased a little bit over the past few months with the unemployment rate increasing to 3.7%, which is its highest level since May last year. We've also seen a bit of a pickup in the rate of underemployment, which has pushed the underutilisation rate back up to 9.8%. Back in November, that was at about 9.3%. So that's a, a pretty significant shift in some of our major labour market metrics over the course of just a few months. Now, this is the second month in a row. So is this part of a trend? Well, potentially. I mean, most economic experts, uh, most policymakers do expect expect the, the labour market to soften a bit over the course of, of 2023. And certainly the data flow that we've seen over the past couple of months would seem to be consistent with that. There, there is good reason to anticipate that's going to be the case. Rates are obviously increased quite significantly since the RBA began tightening policy. That's hit the household sector pretty hard. And the household sector has been pretty hard from, from a variety of different directions, from high inflation to rising mortgage rates to, to falling asset prices in some cases as well. So there's good reason to believe they might pull back on their spending. And if the household sector does that, then you'd naturally expect that to flow over to the business sector and hiring activity as well. Right. I mean, the RBA has flagged, didn't it, that uh, unemployment could rise to 4.5% by next year? Yeah, that, that certainly seems like a, a, a plausible scenario. Just to, to put that into context, for the unemployment rate to be about 4.5% right now, that would mean about 150,000 extra people unemployed compared to what we, we currently have. So that's a pretty big shift in, in labour market conditions over the course of a 12 to 18 month period. Certainly the economy is going to come under a lot of pressure over the next 12 to 18 months and that could certainly be conducive to the unemployment rate increase. Now, I mean, with, with the country reopening too, uh, we're going to have to actually increase the number of jobs by 25,000 a month. We're nowhere near that at the moment, are we? Well, well, certainly in the past couple of months, we haven't been. Employment growth over the course of, of 2022 was incredibly strong. But it is true that with immigration picking up, with, with people flooding back into the country, uh, employment's going to have to be pretty strong. Um, 25,000 a month equals about 300,000 over the course of a year. And I, I think that's going to be quite difficult to achieve, certainly over the next 12 to 18 months, given... The, the various challenges that we do currently face. What about hours worked? Uh, that, that actually fell, didn't it? It did. Declined by 2.1%. And this was an interesting one because it largely reflected the fact that more people than usual were taking holidays in, in January. 
And that is a trend that we have seen throughout the pandemic. So in January of uh, 2021, uh, 2022, and now 2023, more people than normal have been taking holidays. And given what we've all gone through over that period, who could blame them? But uh, so, that's, uh, so that would be quite a common occurrence. So we shouldn't be too concerned about that? Not too concerned. I mean, part of it is being driven by the fall in employment. Obviously, if employment declines, and then, then fewer hours are going to be worked. But to a large extent, it's being driven by this, this holiday effect. Um, that we have seen throughout the, the pandemic. And that just means that the desire for holidays right now is just higher than it was in the past. And most people are choosing to do that uh, in the warmer summer months. Now, now, the biggest risk relates to the household sector, doesn't it? Because you've got high inflation and you've got rising mortgage rates and you've got falling asset prices. And they're all weighing heavily on household budgets. And so, you know, you, you've got that happening combined with the rising unemployment rate. Yeah, that, that's right. The household sector has been hit from a variety of directions over the past six to 12 months. The most obvious examples being that the high inflation, which has hit a lot of discretionary, uh, sorry, non-discretionary spending. Um, high mortgage rates are obviously, high rates are obviously well documented as well. And, and falling asset prices, including property, is a big part of that as well. Just to put into context the increasing mortgage rates, if you had a half a million dollar mortgage, the change in rates since the RBA began hiking rates would translate into roughly $1,000 more in terms of what you're paying per month, which is $12,000 a year. So that's a, that's a big hunk of change coming out of your household budget. And it's definitely going to be the sort of thing that is going to change spending behaviour for those who are heavily exposed to those changes in, in mortgage rates. And with the household sector accounting for about 53% of the Australian economy, if the household sector turns bad, if they decide that they can't keep spending at the rate that they have been, then that could have some really dire impact for the broader Australian economy. While I don't necessarily think a recession is going to happen, if it was to happen, it's going to be because of the household sector and their inability to deal with the various challenges and headwinds that they're currently facing. Well, certainly it would seem that for many people, and I would, I would imagine too, for many sectors, like, for example, retail uh, and real estate, and perhaps finance, it would feel like we are we are heading towards a recession, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be the case? Yeah, it certainly could be. I mean, if you're working in that in uh, in real estate at the moment, I can't imagine you're having much of a, a fun time. Property listings declining, and, and people reluctant to to sell their homes. It, it certainly wouldn't be one of their their busiest periods. I think there's distinct risks for the retail sector uh, as well if household spending does come off, as I anticipate that it may. And, and so for certain sectors across the economy, it is definitely going to feel a little bit like a recession, even if the broader economy does avoid that. Right. OK. OK. And the RBA, uh, where do you see it heading? I mean, uh, you see it still will be increasing rates. I mean, they're talking about, what, 4.1% uh, later this year? Yeah, the market's pricing in around a 4.1% cash rate by August. Um, so that would imply three more rate hikes of 25 basis points. That seems broadly uh, consistent with the communication we've seen from the Reserve Bank. So they've flagged that more hikes are on the way, which implies at least two more hikes. And, and all of that seems sensible given what we have seen with inflation. The difficult task for the Reserve Bank, though, is navigating, dealing with high inflation, but also keeping the Australian economy ticking over. Um, and they'll be closely watching the, the data flow, such as this labour market data, in a sense for what impact uh, existing rate hikes are having on Australian economic activity. And what we have seen in recent months with the data is that it does appear as though higher interest rates and the other 
headwinds that we are facing do appear to be impacting the Australian economy. Um, and that there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Means that what the Reserve Bank has done so far does seem to be working. Right, okay. But uh, the Reserve Bank also has a responsibility to look after the employment sector as well. Yeah, and that, that's a tough balancing act. And it's going to be incredibly difficult for the Reserve Bank to get policy right in, in the current situation. It's going to be very easy for them to maybe tighten rates too much, or alternatively not tighten them enough to, to deal with inflation and, and balance um, those unemployment risks. So I, I certainly don't envy the uh, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe right now and the sort of decisions he has to make um, to keep the economy on track. Right, because it, it's going to be a very, very fine balancing act, very difficult decisions to make. Yeah, there, there's just a high degree of uncertainty right now. We're, we're dealing with a lot of uncertainty, and that makes policy difficult. The situation is changing quite rapidly as well. The data flow is, is shifting as, as well. We've seen inflation come off quite strongly in um, some major economies. Certainly the US looks like it's heading in, in the right direction, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Australia is going to follow suit. And, and so it's going to be very difficult to tailor monetary policy correctly to successfully navigate uh, this high inflation, but also the risk of higher unemployment. Well, indeed, uh, the, the RBA said that the inflation won't get back to about the target band till about 2025. Yeah, which is a bit disturbing for a lot of Australians out there who are probably doing it pretty tough with cost of living pressures. I think on this, there is a lot of risk around the inflation outlook. That is, the situation could change quite rapidly, such that this is the Reserve Bank's best guess of how it's likely to evolve. But there could be a lot of volatility around those numbers, such that inflation could end up being considerably higher than the RBA expects or considerably lower than the RBA expects. Uh, what we have seen overseas with countries such as the United States and inflation coming off uh, quite quite reasonably is that there is reason to be a little bit positive about where the inflation uh, might head over the next 12 to 18 months. That is, there's probably a little bit of downside risk um, to those inflation forecasts that the Reserve Bank has, has put out last week. Right, OK. Well, it'll certainly be something to watch. And Callum, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. Need legal information or legal advice? Today's podcast is brought to you by multi-award-winning law firm McDonald Legal, experts in the areas of dispute resolution and commercial and property law. For a free consultation on your legal matter, McDonald Legal can be reached on 039070 1107 or by visiting the website 
www.mcdonaldlegal.com.au. So what's happening in the news? Well, the National Australia Bank's economics team now has the Australian economy coming to a virtual standstill by mid-year. Australia will be flirting with recession. On GDP, we see the quarterly rate of growth slowing to around 0.1% in mid to late 2023, the team noted. Over the calendar year, the NAB sees Australia's economy muddling along before demand picks up a little next year. That sees through-the-year growth slow to just 0.7% in 2023 and 0.9% in 2024 before around trend growth of 2.2% in 2025. That relies, though, in the NAB's view, on the Reserve Bank easing monetary policy or cutting interest rates early next year. And superannuation tax concessions worth $53 billion could be overhauled by Treasurer Jim Chalmers in an attempt to repair the budget bottom line as the government moves towards blocking early access to retirement savings. Chalmers said, while the government's immediate focus was on enshrining a definition for superannuation, that was not the end of the conversation about a sustainable future for the industry. Tax concessions on super are forecast to cost the budget $52.6 billion in 2022-23, just under the total cost of the age pension of $55.3 billion, according to analysis of the October budget by the Australian Institute. On Monday, the Treasurer opened a consultation on a definition of superannuation that would be enshrined in legislation. The government has suggested that the objective of superannuation is to preserve savings to deliver income for a dignified retirement alongside government support in an equitable and sustainable way. The preservation of super was to ensure superannuation contributions should not be accessed unless as retirement income, it said. Australians have about $3.3 billion in superannuation and legislating what that money can be used for was a Labor election promise. It has been critical of the Morrison government's early pandemic policy that allowed Australians suffering financial hardship to withdraw up to $20,000 from their super, as well as a coalition policy that would give first home buyers access up to $50,000 of their super. And homes and businesses in every state in Australia's eastern seaboard are at risk of electricity shortages from 2027, as looming closures of several coal-fired power stations collide with delays in building crucial new gas and clean energy projects to replace them. In a new report released on Tuesday, the Australian Energy Market Operator, AMO, warns material changes to expectations of available power supplies over coming years in Victoria, South Australia, New South Wales and Queensland have reinforced the urgent need for new generation plants and other key infrastructure to be approved and rolled out. Up to five coal-fired power stations, including the Yalorn generated in Victoria's Latrobe Valley, New South Wales Liddell, Erring and Vales Point power plants, and Queensland Collide B, are expected to shut down this decade, removing 13% of the East Coast grid's generating capacity. Gaps in the market begin to emerge from 2025, AMO warns. First in New South Wales, due to Origin Energy's possible closure of Erring, then in Victoria from 2026 because of the closure of two gas-fired power stations in South Australia. The Forecast gaps will continue to widen until all mainland states connected to the East Coast grid are forecast to breach their reliability standard from 2027 onwards. The reliability standard is a requirement for at least 99.998% of forecast customer demand to be met each year. AMO's updated reliability forecast factor in AGL's decision to bring forward the closure of its 800 megawatt Torrance Island gas-fired power station in South Australia by several years, 2026, a one-year delay to the construction of the Snowy Hydro 2.0 hydro project in New South Wales for 2026 and a year-long delay to the Kuri Kuri gas-fired power plant in New South Wales to 2024. And the remainder of standalone houses starting construction is set to plummet by 21% this year and to their lowest level in a decade next year, according to HIA forecasts, as rising interest rates dent demand. By 2024, housing starts are forecast to fall to 96,310. First time the annual tally is expected to dip below 100,000 in more than 10 years, marking a rapid slowdown from the 149,000 starts achieved in 2021, when detached housing boomed off the back of the federal government's home builder grant. The HIA is expected
expecting detached housing starts to recover in 2025, albeit at a slow level, to 97,820 before climbing to 105,179 in 2026. And universities have shortchanged their staff by a conservatively estimated $83 million over the past few years, with some casuals being underpaid the equivalent of a house deposit. At least 23 universities and colleges have publicly admitted to underpaying casual staff, with the National Tertiary Education Union estimating a total wage deficit of $83,363,141 in a new report. The figure is almost certainly higher than the, than the NTU's estimate. The University of Melbourne, for instance, admitted in an email to staff last week that it was in the process of backpaying $45 million. The NTEU had calculated the figure to be around $32 million. Melbourne is the worst offender with two unresolved cases before the federal court, but Sydney University, RMIT, Monash, Newcastle and Charles Sturt all have been found to have underpaid staff by nearly $5 million or more. And consumer confidence increased by 2.3 percentage points last week to 80.4 after a cumulative fall of 8.7 points over the previous two weeks, according to an ANZ Roy Morgan survey. But at 80.4, the Consumer Confidence Index was still among the worst 10 results in the 150 weeks since the initial COVID-19 outbreak in Australia. And executives at REA, the parent company of realestate.com.au, have asked staff to go into negative leave in an effort to reduce costs, a worrisome moment for the rest of Australia's media and advertising industry. The ASX-listed digital real estate powerhouse has been a significant profit maker for shareholders and a breakout success story for News Corp, which owns 61% of the company. But REA announced this week the profits of the company were driven down 9% in the last three months of 2022, driven mainly by a huge decline in property listings off the back of rising interest rates. REO Chief Executive Owen Wilson publicly said the company would not be part of a 5% reduction in the headcount at news. And a group of the nation's biggest carbon emissions say they can slash their carbon emissions by 92% by 2050. In a major report after three years' work by a large range of key players, including the CSIRO, Capital Managers, Australian Super, industry groups like AIG and BHP, Blue Scope, Orica, West Farmers Chemicals, and Woodside Energy, among others. The group found the industry can evolve to survive in a new zero-carbon future. They found that the five major national supply chains that supply iron and steel, aluminium, other metals, chemicals and LNG, generating around 44% of total national emissions, 17% of GDP, and $236 billion in exports, could reduce annual emissions from 221 million tonnes of CO2 in 2020 to just 17 million tonnes in 2050. The group's most eye-popping estimate is that the 30-year heavy industry transition needs about $20 billion a year to modernise industrial regions and energy systems and could generate 1.3 million jobs. If successful, Australia will not only decarbonise its industry, but may see an expansion in sectors like steel and iron, where production could rise by up to 20% by 2050. Aluminum production could double, while lithium could leap more than 15-fold. By contrast, LNG production is expected to fall by 80% around 2040 onwards as the big North Asian economies shift off fossil fuels. And Commonwealth Bank has created a watch list of at-risk companies, including across the construction, retail and commercial property sectors, and assembled a war chest of provisions to prepare for, for an economic downturn. The bank's business group executive, Mike Vasey-Lyle, said the lender was preparing for the worst when it put aside an additional $231 million in loan impairment provisions in its latest set of results. That took the unit's total provisions for loan losses to $263 million. Mr Vasey Lyle noted that while it had been a particularly good environment for the business bank in recent years, with unprecedented economic support and lower rates keeping many small and medium operations out of insolvency, that was expected to change. 
Mr Vasey Lyle said commercial property and construction businesses were a particular concern to CBA as the economy slowed. The bank recorded a 72 basis point increase in troublesome and impaired assets across its construction lending book. That took total troublesome and impaired assets to $467 million at the business bank, up from $370 million recorded in June. And the profit reporting season continues. Flight centre's total revenue tripled to $1 billion in the year ending December, compared with 2021. It trimmed losses before tax to $18 million from $276 million. EBITDA swung back to positive territory at $77 million from a loss of $190 million in 2021. Wally had a statutory loss of $99 million. Santos has reported jumping annual net profits of 221% for the year into December 31, totaling US $2.1 billion, that's $3 billion Aussie, from revenues of US $79 billion, up 65% on the previous year. Real estate investment manager Qualitas recorded its net profit at $10.7 million, up 117% from the prior corresponding period. Centre Group's revenue rose 7.8% to $2.5 billion in the year ending December from a year ago, staking profit after tax 18% higher, not $970 million. Statutory profit after tax dropped to $301 million in 2021 from $888 million a year ago. Woolworth sales rose to $33 billion, taking net profit 14% higher to $1.6 billion. Logistics software solutions provider WiseTech Global has reported a 40% jump in underlying net profit after tax to $108.5 billion. Low-cost jewellery retailer Levisa's net profit jumped 31.9% to $47.7 million in first half FY 2023. EML payments said operating income, EBITDA, swung to a loss of $8.2 million versus $14.2 million in the prior corresponding half. Oz Minerals' net profit fell to $207 million, down $323 million from a year ago. Hotel commerce platform SiteMinder reported a $25.5 million loss for the first half, down 71% from an $87 million loss in the prior corresponding period. Ethical Farms Management Group Australian Ethical has reported an 82% fall in its half-year profit, $961,000. AUB Group reported a net profit of $47 million in the six months to December, from $31 million a year ago. Plumbing Business Risk Group has lifted its net profit up 18% to $186 million on sales, up 23% to $4427 million for the six months ending December 31, 2022. Domino's Pizza first half earnings before interest and tax fell 21.3% to $113.9 million, and underlying net profit was down 21.5% to $71.7 million. First half earnings before interest and tax fell by 21.3% to $113.9 million, and underlying net profit was down 21.5% to $71.7 million. Gold miner St. Barbara has reported an underlying loss after tax for the first half of $8.6 million, compared to an underlying profit of $15.1 million in the first half of FY22. BHP's half-year profit after tax dropped 32% to US $6.4 billion. Oil and gas company Karun Energy recorded its half-year revenue at $299.4 million US, that's $436.3 million Aussie, up by 61%. The company reported statutory net profit was US $77.6 million. Viva Energy reported record EBITDA on a replacement cost basis of $1.1 billion in the full year ended December 31, up 122% in the prior year. Stockland statutory profit dropped sharply to $301 million from $850 million in the first half of fiscal 2022. Remedius Resources reported net profit up of $29.1 million for the first half, down from $73.4 million in the prior corresponding period. Coles reported total sales revenue growth from continuing operations of 3.9% to $20.8 million in the half year. EBIT from continuing operations was up 9.9% to $1.1 billion. Founder-led auto parts supplier 
ARB corporations has posted a 31.2% profit fall to $47.4 million on sales down 5.1% to $340.8 million for the six months of December 31. Aged care provider Estia Health reduces net loss to $25 million in the six months of December from $44 million in the, previous, in the preceding period following easing in the pandemic. A $42.6 million impairment has dragged AMA Group to a net counting loss of $37.2 million for the six months of December 31. Hello World has swung to a net profit of $1.4 million total transaction value that more than tripled to $1.2 billion for six months to December 31. Internet communications business Symbio posted a net profit down 34% to $4.4 million on recurring revenue up 5% to $57.2 million for the six months of December 31. Software provider Newix has posted a noted net profit of $1.3 million annualised contract value up 3.4% to $170.2 million for the six months of December 31. Bendigo and Adelaide Bank's cash earnings after tax climbed 22.9% to $294.7 million on a return on equity of 8.79%. For six months to December 31, health insurer NIB posted a net profit up 4.8% to $91.6 million. Sydney-focused real estate agent Sid McGrath has posted a net profit of $1.8 million. Blue Scope Steel's interim net profit sank 64% to $599 million from $1.64 from billion, and first half underlying EBIT was down 61% to $851 million from $2.2 billion. Goldmine and Northern Star Resources has declared cash earnings up 3% to $467 million on sales up 5% to $1,949 million for the six months of December 31. Financial software business Eris has, has posted a net profit down 28.6% to $52.7 million on sales up 37 to $617.9 million. Charter Hall reported statutory net profit of $226.5 million for the, for the half year. Furniture company Adairs has reported net profit of $21.8 million, a 23.9% increase for its, for its first half 2023 financial year results. Hotels, Cinemas and Ledger Group Event Limited has posted a normalised net profit up $39.4 million, around double the prior year. Property management business GPT posted a full year net profit of $469.3 million. Ample reported earnings for the year ended December 31 totaled a record $1.32 billion, up 124% from the previous year. Link Group expected operating EBIT of $80.2 million for the first half of the 2023 financial year. Reliance Worldwide has delivered a 4.6% rise in interim net profits to US $66.6 million. Macquarie Telecom Group has announced revenue of $172.5 million, up 16%. EBITDA, $51.3 million, up 26%. And MPAT, $8.5 million, up 133%. Seek forecast full year 2023 guidance of $1.26 billion revenue, $560 million of EBITDA, and $250 million of net profit. Best and Less's net profit slumped 32% to $13.7 million in the six months of December from a year ago. Jones Ling's Group's full year forecast sales revenue has been upgraded to $1.146 billion and forecast EBITDA to $111.1 million. Judo's first half profit was $53.2 million before tax, up from $12.6 million in the second half of 2022. Mining equipment producer Austin Engineering reported its net profit was up 3% to $5.4 million. Tabcor has posted a $52 million net profit after tax for the half year to December 31. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Dan Freckling from Boltiv about the convoluted digital ad ecosystem. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the reporting season. This show is brought to you by multi-award winning law firm McDonnell Legal, experts in the areas of dispute resolution, commercial and property law. For a free consultation on your legal matter, McDonnell Legal can be reached on 03 
9070-1107 or by visiting the website www.mcdonaldlegal.com.au. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 